Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is From Product-Driven to Client-Driven, an Independent Advisor's 3x Revenue Growth Story. It's a conversation with Matt Blocky, CEO of Equilibrium Wealth. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. For Apple Podcast users, I'd be grateful if you'd give the show a review. Your input helps us to make the series better and alerts other advisors like you who may find the content to be relevant. And while you're at it, if you know others who are considering change or simply looking to learn more about the industry landscape, please feel free to share this episode or the series widely. It's amazing how many of the industry's top advisors got their start building a book of business from scratch with one of the major insurance-based brokerages. Similar to the wirehouse training programs, there may be no better place to learn the ropes of the profession, including critical sales and technical skills. But in many cases, those who have their sights set on the longer term, that is building a business with a lasting legacy and enterprise value, often find themselves limited in the environment, especially those who morph their business beyond life insurance to a focus on investments and comprehensive wealth management. That was the case for Matt Blocky, who got his start at Northwestern Mutual more than a dozen years ago and built the practice to $120 million of assets under management. After getting educated on the industry landscape, he realized that he could build the business beyond where it was and have greater freedom to market and introduce new services to his clients. That is, to step away from being product-driven and focus instead on being client-driven. And in Matt's mind, the only way to do that was to go fully independent, without a service provider, but instead build an RIA firm himself. And so he did, and in the midst of a pandemic to boot. In June of 2020, he launched RIA Equilibrium Wealth with Fidelity as custodian, a move that resulted in tripling his revenue to $3 million and more than doubling his assets under management. Matt shares his story and the key things he could do outside the Northwestern world that helped to foster his growth. Plus, he offers sage advice to other prospective breakaways. There's lots to discuss, so let's get to it. Matt, thank you so, so much for doing this with me today. Let's start at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about yourself, essentially your path from an internship in financial planning to business owner in 2020. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mindy, thank you so much for for having me and huge fan. I listened to every episode for like a five-year period and that led me to where I am today. So thank you for putting out amazing content. I love it. Thank you. 
So really quick background. So I went to a small school in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, grew up in Pittsburgh. And during my four years there, when I was a a major in finance and accounting, I did an internship at a rather large insurance broker dealer company and had a good experience, was like in the top 1% from a uh, results perspective, but really just had a bad experience calling on friends and family. And people didn't really, from my network, didn't really respect the career and said, you know, go get a real job, basically. So I ended up working at a big four accounting firm. I lasted all of 10 months, at which point I started interviewing at the big wire houses. They told me, hey, you need a minimum of $250,000 in an account to even for us to accept. I was like, well, in my network, I have one person I know that has over $250,000. So obviously that wasn't going to work. So I ended up back at that big insurance company where they said, Matt, you can get investment license here and you can talk to and serve anyone. So I ended up back there after the perspective of not wanting to be an accountant and was there for 10 years before I started my own RAA. I love it. And you know, I've shared my story before, but I too started out with a degree in accounting, went to work for what was big eight public accounting in those days, hated it, found I was ill-suited for it, began recruiting in the accounting field. And then here I am today recruiting in wealth management. So it's wonderful that you, um, you know, I think accounting was a good background, but it's wonderful. It led you to what makes you feel soulful. So you spun out of Northwestern Mutual, which was the insurance company you're referring to in June of 2020 after a 10-year career there. And that was really the height of the pandemic. So what was that like? You know, it it was crazy, but it was it was good and it was necessary. And and looking back, it actually worked to our a tremendous advantage. Um, and the reason I say that is because a lot of our, we work with a lot of physicians, a lot of retirees, a lot of executives, a lot of business owners. And as far as the retirees go, they want to meet in person and they want everything paper Simon. They did, you know, before COVID. And so that forced everyone to adopt. And now we're a paperless firm. We were able to complete a transition in what Fidelity told us was a record time. So although it seemed crazy, like why would you ever do that? It really worked to our advantage. Interesting. Okay. I want to just give our listeners some perspective on your business. And then we're going to talk about why you left your former broker dealer and why independence and a lot about the business, the RIA you've built. But let's start with um, with the business itself. So how much in assets? Um, I think I read that in June of 2020, when you broke from the broker dealer, you were managing about 120 million and now it's almost 300 million. So tell me a little bit about what A, are those numbers accurate? And B, that growth is pretty awesome. Yeah, I think so. When we were at the prior broker dealer, I think it was like 140. We left with 120 because we used that. And I will get into this, I think I see in a question in a second. But 80 20 analysis, we took 20% of our clients that represented like at that time 90% of our revenue. So we spun out with about 120. And yeah, that's very accurate. Now we're right around 300 million. Obviously, the market is very volatile. Right. So I want to get to, as we move through this, what's, what you think is the kind of things that are responsible for that growth. But I guess just one question sort of to preview the answer is, do you think you would have grown that way had you stayed where you were? No, I do not. Interesting. Okay. Do you want to tell us why? I'd love to hear. Yeah. I think the biggest reason when we look at what happened, we actually slowed down because we were in the culture of the prior broker dealer of, of get a hundred new clients a year. And I had slowed that down years before where it was like 15 or 16. But when we left after six months, clients really responded well 
they surprised and we put, we obviously educated a lot of people on what an REA is, what being fee only is, what a fiduciary is. And so not only did clients give us referrals that had never given us referrals in the past, I don't ask for referrals. It's just like they came out of the woodwork. All the other people in general, I'd say like 95% of our clients that had us as one person on their team ended up consolidating everything to us. And I don't think that would have happened because I think they were comfortable with the team, but they weren't comfortable with the company we were with at the time. Yeah. So, and again, we'll talk more about this in a little while, but just generally speaking, our understanding from having counseled a lot of advisors that came from the insurance-owned BD world felt that the insurance companies, the core of their business is the insurance company and wealth management was sort of an add-on and they just weren't investing in wealth management because it wasn't the priority. And so they didn't have the innovative technology and the scaled platforms and investments to platform. Did you find that that was the case? There's no question. I mean, I I always joked like there was this grid rate and I was like, I would lower my grid rate if you just let me do my own thing. And they're like, we're taking this money because we're adding value. But I, I felt like it was just getting in the way because it was very proprietary in nature. Obviously, there was funds with, with revenue cost sharing that sometimes there was no trading fees versus trading. So it was just kind of in my mind, it was a big mess. And I don't think clients really cared about that. But if I make it a big deal in my head, it's going to end up being a big deal. That's what I found. All right. Again, more to come on that. So let's get back to the business itself. Tell us a little bit about your clients. Yes. We have 315 households right now that make up the 300 million. And we really focus on about half of our clients are physicians. And then the other three segments are executives, typically at Fortune 500 companies, retirees, and then business owners. Got it. And tell us a little bit about the team members, the whether or not there are any other advisors on the team, the support, et cetera. Yeah, no, absolutely. So there's we have a COO who does all of the EOS implementation. So big fans of the book Traction and the entrepreneurial operating system. We have a 10-year, three-year, one-year, and then quarterly rocks. So that's almost a full-time job just to, to calibrate that every quarter. So she does that along with the HR finances and a million other hats. Then we have three client-facing lead advisors. These are all young guys, you know, in their late 20s, all phenomenal planners. Had All three of them actually came from the prior broker-dealers. Weren't the best salespeople, but are phenomenal financial planners. The clients have responded very well to the handoff process with those three. And then we have two amazing internal support members where they do all of the e-money plans, all of the investment paperwork, all of the trading, all of the internal investment and financial planning operations. And then we have one person really focused on marketing and administration duties, and then one creative person. We actually have a, like a full-time videographer that does is responsible for our podcast, our videos, and a lot of the marketing efforts that we do. I love that. So let me ask you a question. How much or what percentage of that sort of team support worked with you previously. And I'm smiling when you talk about a creative person. I know for sure that person couldn't have been on the team when you were no. in the broker-dealer world because you're not even a little bit allowed to communicate and and let alone communicate creatively. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about this in a second, but the one article I finally got approved, it just took like, it took a six month process to get through compliance. By the time it was approved, all of the content was out of date. So anyways, but now we're having to do it same day, which is really cool. But yeah. to the majority, all but three 
were with with me before. Yeah, that's exciting. Okay, good. All right. So I want to talk a little bit about the elephant in the room, at least in my mind, and that's your age. Look, this is an industry where age just doesn't matter. There are incredibly successful 20 and 30-year-olds and equally incredibly successful 85-year-olds still doing it. So there's no barrier on either side. But I would imagine, especially if you're counseling sophisticated executives and physicians and the like, how your age, your young age, when you started in the business, impacted you. And in fact, I had listened to a podcast episode you did with Michael Kitsis. I think it was in 2018. He asked you how a 20-something-year-old advisor built a niche working with physicians and retirees. And so my question is, I'd love to hear a little bit about how it felt to be that young counseling people, I imagine many, many years your elder, and what advice you'd have for other young advisors either breaking in or wanting to really grow a business. I'd say the advice is, so I think I was just meeting with an attorney, a new client last night, and he's like, that the worst attorneys are those that spend all the marketing dollars because all they do is market. They don't actually know how to practice law. And I think there's some corollaries there in the financial planning industry. So the advice I would give is if you're part of a big company and sales is a huge aspect and you're in this competitive culture, what I did is really, I wasn't the best salesperson. So I just had to educate myself on giving advice. And so for physicians, that was everything I really didn't get paid for. Student loans, just setting up like backdoor Roths that I couldn't even charge for really because the accounts were so small. But those relationships over the last 12 years have blossomed. And now I work with a lot of those clients' parents. So you just have to focus on advice first, always doing what's best for the clients. And once you provide enough value and you develop an amazing relationship, the social proof goes and then word of mouth is if, you know, at the prior broker deal we were taught, get like five referrals every meeting. I never did that. And I felt like a failure every day. But I can tell you, one person emailing me that's heard from Dr. So-and-so work with Matt and his team. They're great. That's more powerful, in my opinion, than getting a hundred forced names out of someone's cell phone or LinkedIn profile. I couldn't agree with you more. And we work with a lot of younger next-gen advisors. And our counsel is, age really doesn't matter. What people respond to is someone who shares their values, who's going to work hard for them, who is going to be show up authentically and do the right thing and do it better than anybody else could. And it sounds like that's exactly what you did. No question. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about why you left the insurance broker-dealer world and how you landed in the independent space. So let's talk generally. What are the things that drove you to consider other options outside of where you had begun your financial planning career? Yeah, absolutely. And just really quick to back up, there's actually a podcast recorded for new financial advisors. I looked, I really like spent hours looking at the last 10 years of my career and what did I do wrong? What did I do right? And so actually I'll send that to you in a link if you want to put it in the show notes, but it's like a 45 minute thing I just recorded of myself with, if you're a new financial advisor, 3% of advisors make it. If you want to be part of the 3%, here's a guaranteed roadmap in my opinion. I love it. Thank you. Share it with Um, us and we will share it with our listeners for sure. Absolutely. So to answer your question, I'm going to list off these things and then we can dig into as much or as little detail as you want. So why we left. So first, another Kitch is round two that I did. I think it's episode like 308. We talked through that whole kind of mindset and journey, but I think it really boils down to 
there's a lot of conflicts in my mind with a grid rate, my prior broker dealer. That's the first reason. The second reason is I was focusing on advice over products. They wanted me to focus on products over advice. The third reason was culture. The fourth reason was the ability to move at the speed I wanted to move at. The fifth was creativity, just being totally blocked with creativity and ideas. Six was other business ventures I wanted to start. And then the seventh was I love really doing hard stuff and I love the journey of that. And it was getting pretty, I was pretty much in a box and I pretty much had it not master, but it was, we we're only able to do what they told us we were allowed to do. So there was, I didn't really see a growth personally or for my team members at that time. I love it. It's funny. Most people, when they come on the show or advisors that we counsel in general, talk about the drivers, the things that sort of motivated them to consider options elsewhere. And in our view, in our parlance, we talk about pushes and pulls. So what you described, and I just sort of jotted them down quickly, conflicts, I call it an incongruence you describe between your vision, which is advice over product, and their vision, which was product over advice, limitations in terms of how quickly you could move, an incompatible culture, if you will, lack of an ability to be creative, and the desire to, or an inability to launch outside business activities. And then I'd say you talk about the pull toward loving doing something hard and wanting to really grow something bigger than what you were able to do there. And so I think that's a really clear articulation of what many people feel. And by the by, that list, while it may have been what you felt relative to working at an insurance-owned broker-dealer, those are a lot of the same conflicts, pushes and pulls that almost every advisor that comes on this show talks about. I would say I can take personal credit for half of those, even though everyone feels, but the other half was listening to your podcast over the five years leading up. It was just hearing that perspective of all the advisors that had jumped ship or had made the transition and then not even knowing what I didn't know and then realizing, wow, that is so true. And I never realized that. So I think the perspective of other people who are sharing their journeys is just so key in self-reflection and self-awareness. Yeah, well, thank you for saying that because that was my whole goal for starting this was there really was no place before I launched this podcast for advisors to see and hear from those that had come before them. And you're right, when you're in the soup, it's really hard to have perspective on even how you're feeling. And you don't realize a lot of times until you either hear somebody else say it or experience for yourself, oh my God, I feel that too. But if I recall, Matt, you left in a bit of a hurry and not because you were terminated, but I think because of an email snafu. So what can you tell us about that? Yeah. At the time, we had, I had done the, the Kitches podcast, number one, and there was a big miscommunication with my team. You know, it was, everything has to go through compliance. We sent it through compliance, but there's a miscommunication. The podcast got published before they could review it. So they were upset about that because I pointed out some conflicts of interest that Michael had interviewed me about. So we went back and forth. And after that, it was just never the same. Could tell that there was just extra eyes on me. And you're not allowed to say this or give student loan advice, but these other advisors across the hall that I taught to do that are doing the same thing. So it was just, it got to be a really frustrating environment. I think it was inevitable for, it kind of was a self-fulfilling prophecy. They were worried about me leaving and they said it so much that it just became a self-fulfilling prophecy. What did you learn from that? Because that's a helpful 
while the details of sort of the snafu are unique to your circumstance, I think there are a lot of advisors that listen to this that either were called into a manager's office and given a warning, if you will, and either under heightened supervision or not, just sort of feel questioned. Are you thinking about leaving or whatever it may be? And whether or not it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, it's still the notion that it didn't feel the same. So what did you learn from that? Yeah, I think a couple of things. So one, it was kind of like one of those, you know, you've interviewed Ron Carson. I'm a big fan. I've coached with him for years and he calls it the S-curve moments, right? So I think it's an S-curve moment. That time you either, you've really, it's black or white, in my opinion. You either give in, you stop giving all the advice and you just focus on products and, and just become, go back in line as one of their foot soldiers or you fight back and realize that, you know what? Even though they're making me feel this was my, I didn't do anything wrong here. I'm being genuine. I'm giving good advice. I'm providing the best in class service to my clients. And what are they, what's the disagreement over? And then you just have to overpower. I mean, it's, it was a very scary thing to do to leave a Fortune 100 company and the way it did and the speed it did. But it, it was a big, definitely a confidence building, high risk. I had to bet on the team and everyone came through. Yeah. Amazing. I like what you just said. You've got to, in a situation like that, you've got to either give in or in my words, take back agency over your professional life. But not everybody has the ability, the risk appetite, or the courage to do that. So kudos to you. So had you been thinking about leaving that world before that happened? Or did that just, that was just sort of the straw that broke the camel's back and out you went? Yeah, not to get like super, I don't know, like psychological, but I, this stuff really, the human brain really interests me, right? So it was definitely a very, it was a push and pull in my head, right? So the culture there, if you're a high achiever, you got all kinds of recognition. Well, I grew up in a, I love my parents to death, in a very strict, very religious background. So I'd never experienced recognition. I always heard fall back in line, fall back in line. So when I went there and I was like the number one advisor of the first year, second years, and second place in my third year, I think there was so much recognition that felt really good. But it was, in my opinion, it was very surface level. It was, it created more problems than good. It made me feel good, but it just created a lot of issues because then you have all these advisors that want your free advice and everything like that. So when you realize that the more important part of your journey is the journey itself and recognition, I mean, it can be a good thing if it's purpose-driven, but it can be a really bad thing if it's just recognition for recognition. It becomes addictive, but not necessarily soulful. Absolutely. So just having that realization, I think, was extremely important to realize why I was leaving and what was keeping me there. I love it. All right. My next question is my favorite. You and I communicated offline in preparation for this conversation. You said to me, you had lots of head trash. That is the best term of art I've ever heard. Head trash that made you stay longer at Northwestern Mutual than you should have. What was your head trash? Yeah, I mean, I listen, I, had, I hired a life coach and she had worked with like tons of reps there. So it was kind of like very good producer works with this person. But it was interesting because like every session was about leaving. And so I think the top ones I wrote down here, and this again is very psychological, but it was taking over responsibility for others. So at the time I had spun out, there was like a satellite office and I was very close with the, the manager director at the time. And he had taken a lot of risks, made big bets on me 
very thankful for everything he did for me because he would talk to me every day in my first five years. And a lot of this business is you kind of quit every day when you have all this rejection. And so when he took that big risk to open up the new office, I felt like if I left, I would be responsible if that office failed. The other thing was I did a lot of joint work. I was a very detailed advisor. So there was like three other advisors who I was their go-to investment person, right? They would go close an insurance sale and they would bring me in for the financial planning and we'd get the investments. And so we shared that revenue together. And so I just felt like this overbearing over responsibility of, hey, my friends aren't going to be okay if I leave. And none of that was true. Obviously, when we left, we paid at 4x instead of 2x, which is what they recommended and bought them out, bought everyone out. The office that I was afraid of leaving is now absolutely thriving. I think they're doing better without me than because it's a product culture company. And I was an advice person. Everyone was at the time, very humbly, you know, they were looking up to me and I think I was dragging down the product sales. So everything happens for a reason, but that was definitely number one. It's just general over-responsibility of others. The second thing, you know, was just the this is an, another kind of deep one, but I had seen some of the biggest advisors leave the company. It was like almost like a 20% of the top advisors left the company over a three or four year period. I was started asking why. I started asking those questions because I wasn't self-aware enough to know what kind of culture this was. I was afraid. I had the trash of basically my entire friend group at the time, or let's say 80% of my friend group at the time because I was working so much being part of that company. I was afraid of just losing my identity uh, and losing my friends. And definitely looking back, it was it just proves it was the right move. I think you also told me that a lot of it centered around clients. You were a young advisor. You had spent 10 years building up this client base in a business you were proud of and concerns around clients following you and if you would be sued. Yeah, there's no question. So there was an advisor before me that had gotten sued and they had threatened his team members, like had cops show up to their door. It was just like all very like scare tactic based. And so the thing didn't go anywhere and he was fine. He did everything wrong, by the way. So I was like, I'm going to do everything right. Listen to all your podcasts. Like, Don't take information. You can't tell. Do it by the book and just trust in the fact that you have relationships. I, it was definitely head trash. I'm like, what if I've seen reps leave before me and they just send the hound dogs and like everyone forgets about their own books and just focuses on trying to retain these clients. And it never really worked. And I was like, well, if those advisors that they retained all their clients, I'm sure I will too. And so it was a lot of head trash, but that is one I got over a lot quicker than the other ones I described. So head trash, again, is the best term because I'm at this 27 years of having the privilege of counseling advisors and advisors of all shapes and sizes from all different corners of the industry. And there isn't one that hasn't had or doesn't have head trash. What percentage of the head trash, the crap you worried about before you moved was valid. It was like, if negative is an option, like that's the option I'm going to take. So on a scale yeah. of like negative 100 to 100, it was like negative 100. 100 yeah. Like if that made, like all of it was not only head trash, but it was in the opposite direction. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. So you say you were worried about losing your identity, losing your friends and them bad mouthing you. And you're saying that did work out to be true. So how do you reconcile that? How did you get comfortable with all the head trash, the crap that was holding you back? What ultimately gave you the courage to power through? So now that we're on the other side, I have this reflection, right? I think 
if you're friends with someone and it's predicated on a business relationship, that's not a friendship, that's a business relationship, right? And I think just being able to delineate that and people switch jobs all the time. So it was the right thing to do. And had I stayed there, I think I just would have stunted my growth and self-awareness by a lot. Got it. But I think the one that seems hardest to reconcile and that every advisor I've ever counseled with, large and small, worries about is client portability. And while, yes, even advisors that have had 20 or 30-year relationships still worry about portability, that's a valid concern. How'd you reconcile that one? Yeah. It just became so painful that I didn't care about the finances. I didn't care about... I knew I had the skill set to get new clients. I was like, literally... If I get no clients to follow me, I'm still going to do this and I'm just going to work from the ground up again. So that was literally my mindset. Now, out of the clients we wanted to take, 99% of them came with us, which was amazing. And it speaks to just the relationship we have with them because they they were getting calls every hour probably by the other reps. But I think it was just, it, I've heard this quote, it's like, you don't really, it's really hard to change your mind after you're like 25 or something like that, unless you have some kind of like big event, like a traumatic event or something like that. And that's really what it took for me. I think what you're saying is true. I think even not in the professional arena, but generally speaking, I think sometimes you get to a point in life where you just say, I cannot do this anymore. And damn the torpedoes, no matter what happens. Even if I move in zero clients, follow me, and I'm starting from nothing, I'd still be okay with the decision because this is no longer working for me. No question. Yeah, the decision at that point had been made. And, and unfortunately, I wish I could have made that decision years ago in more of like a proactive state. But generally, I really did like the environment. I liked the joint work, the collaboration. That was really hard for me to, to reconcile in my head. But now it's all reconciled very clearly. And I was like, wow, this was the best move ever. Yeah. So a couple things about that. One, I've done probably more than 100 interviews now on this podcast with breakaway advisors. So advisors like you that left the broker-dealer world to go some version of independent a hundred percent of those hundred or more people have said that the only regret of having gone independent was not having done it sooner. So you are definitely not alone in that. And I think that what we're talking about, which is the common thread in almost every interview I've done also, is the notion of congruence, is the notion of living an authentic life and the notion of authenticity and congruence between your vision for the business and the firm you works for vision so that the visions can be disparate as long as you're allowed to service clients the way you want to. But when that vision is so disparate and the mandates about, in your case, product over, over advice become so distasteful, you just get to a point where you don't have a choice. For many, I don't know that it's quite that black and white. Like It's almost a good thing that it was that clear and definitive for you because it makes the decision to leave easier. I think for most people, it's more shades of gray. Yeah, the flip in my mind that I make is like, I honestly have nothing bad to say looking now that I have the perspective looking back about that prior company. I mean, they're a Fortune 100 company. They have great insurance products and they have, a, in general, a good field force that does good for clients. But I truly just don't think I was a good fit for them. And I, I'm an advice centric 
planner and products are part of a financial plan, but they can't be forced and you can't have a business model dependent on that, which can put the clients folks of interest at risk. And that's just something that we couldn't handle. So the writing was on the wall for sure. Another common ground people share is that while when they choose to leave a traditional firm or a brokerage firm, they're leaving because there's usually a list of frustrations or limitations. But none of them necessarily regret the time that they spent there. And I believe things happen when they're meant to So and unfold as they did. So Northwestern Mutual provided you a wonderful training ground and a wonderful platform upon which to build the business. You just outgrew it over time. Absolutely. And they taught me activity, which I think a lot of, if I've talked to a lot of RA owners and they don't have the activity mindset that the prior broker dealer had, that's a really important factor. At the end of the day, activity and key performance indicators really drive a lot of, you know, a lot of business moving forward. All right. I want to pivot now to talking about your current situation, the RAA, the fee-only RAA, I might add, that you launched in June of 2020. You are the CEO of Equilibrium Wealth. So fee-only RIA is an unusual move right out of the gate. It's rare that we see an advisor, especially one coming from a commission-based culture, eschew commissions completely and go right to fee-only. So what was behind that? Like, had you even considered the notion of going hybrid, meaning RIA for fee-based assets and using a friendly broker-dealer for commission-based business? We had, and I'd done a lot of research, and actually your podcast was tremendously helpful because I, I listened to a couple big, might have been Ron Carson, a couple other, they, they were in the process of dropping the broker-dealer. And so what I think was, it was an amazing decision looking back in hindsight because there's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of different ways you can go. And I believe at prior firm, we'd accept every client that wanted to work with us. But in reality now, I mean, we refer other advisors to more clients come in the door than actually accept them as clients. And so I think it's really important to find who you work well with and who you don't work well with, because all of our systems and scale and team and, you know, our niche is set up to work with certain clientele. And so also with how we do that, how we bill and how we're able to scale our services are predicated on that as well. And I think when you have a setup where you can just let's earn business any way we can. It's not a scalable model. But the other thing in my head, so that's like the business answer. But I felt like I would kind of have like a double standard in a sense if I was going to say, I'm leaving for these reasons. And now at the new firm, we're doing the same stuff. So we truly wanted to, here was our pain points. We wanted to fix every one of those if possible right off the get go. So looking back, it was a scary decision, but it was the right decision. So say more about that, the pain points that you wanted to fix in this new model. So what were those pain points relative to a grid system or commission-based model that made you know or feel that getting rid of your broker-dealer license was the way to go? Yeah, two things. The grid rate was a huge factor. So if you just look, pick out like a, any kind of business, right, a million dollars of top-line revenue, I think in REAs, most REAs have a profit margin of about 30%, right? So that if you're operating with that 30% and you didn't sell insurance, enough insurance the prior year and your grid rate drops by 20%, now you're missing $200,000. So your profit margin just dropped instead of 300000 to 100000 It's really hard to attract 
good team members and make sure that the cash flow of your business is still in there to exist if there's those potential huge fluctuations that are all dependent on you selling commissionable products. So that was probably the biggest reason because our clients, we love the clients we work with. They were very properly insured. And so we really didn't have anything more to sell them. So that was just a, we have to leave moment. And then secondly, from a, an RIA perspective, before there was all kinds of, to get an advisory account, you need X amount. But the break-even point was really like you needed over 50000 because then they take program fees and all that. So all that stuff dropped off. And our technology, and we use Orion, we custodian primarily through Fidelity. We just had Charles Schwab. We've interacted brokers. But none of these places have minimums. And so we're able to open up multiple accounts as small or as big as they are and not have to worry about the clients getting dinged with all these extra kind of fees. And why the RIA space? Was it RIA or bust, or did you consider other options when you knew you were going to leave? I remember talking to Wendy on your team in detail, and she told me, this is a bold move. If you'd go, most firms your size, I mean, you could do an RIA over $100 million, but most firms your size would plug in. And I think I had so much, I don't know what you call it, PTSD from feeling the control drama of stay in your lane. You can't say this. You can't provide student loan advice. You can't do an Excel spreadsheet to do a annuity expense analysis to get clients. I mean, it's all kinds of nonsense. And so I didn't want to ever take the chance of not being able to do what's in the best interest of the clients. And I knew I'd only have that autonomy if it was a truly an RIA that we own. You just mentioned the word plug-in, and Wendy was right, Wendy being Wendy Leung, who is one of our top recruiters at Diamond Consultants. And Wendy counseled you to say that $100 million is really the minimum generally where it begins to make sense to start your own REA. So at $120 million, it was on the low side. And most advisors with $120 million under management would have opted to what we call plug-in or tuck into an existing independent firm. So taking an established RIA and joining that RIA as an employee, most likely maybe a minority partner, and going from there. So it was courageous for you to say, I know I'm on the small side. I know most in my position would have opted to plug into something larger, but I don't want to do that. Yeah, it was definitely take my experience and a suiciding about like anyone that I was plugging into. I'd have any even a chance of that same experience I wanted to avoid. But then secondly, just looking at what do I find the most enjoyment out of it? I really do love figuring stuff out from scratch. It's one of my biggest passions. So having everything kind of set up for me, it actually sounded really boring. I loved going through and researching what technology, how everything fit together, and what firms are doing it wrong, what firms are doing it right. And it was a really enjoyable journey. And in my perspective, it was extremely hard. At that point, I was wearing Stillium, business owner hat, a CEO hat, an advisor hat. So you're wearing a lot of hats, something I was willing to do. But if you plug in and you primarily want your job to be an advisor, that's probably the right move. But if you start your own RIA, your the entrepreneurial spirit is really able to be lifted. And if you eventually spin out to be your own, so let's say you plug in and then eventually become your own RIA, there's going to be a lot of things at that time I think you have to figure out that were already being done for you, such as back office management or a tech stack or whatever that is. And so being forced to figure that out has really set us up for a lot of long-term success, in my opinion. 
Well, courageous, but ultimately it worked out. And so kudos to you. Tell us a little bit about Equilibrium's value proposition. I would say most, and I'll just give you a little bit of client language here, but when we sit down with the kind of niche that we work with, so physicians or executives, they're business owners. The one thing in common they have is they're very low on time. And they have a lot of decision fatigue because their jobs are very stressful. So usually at that point in their life, because we're usually talking to people that are well-established, that have over a million dollars of assets or more. And usually I ask them, what's your client experience? And what do your zero advisor cover during meetings? And so our value proposition is we're never going to meet to meet. You're the CEO. We're the CFO. You are actually offloading and delegating your stuff to us. We're not going to meet to meet. We're going to report to you and save you your time, not waste your time. So I feel like a lot of advisors, especially in the prior broker dealer, the meetings literally were just wasting clients' time trying to sell them more products. So I would say in a nutshell, we talk about the three C's. So being a CFO is the number one. Being a catalyst. So we have a lot of very detailed, you know, intergenerational, a lot of advice conversations. And a lot of times you just need a client to move a little bit. And that, that inertia allows the plan to keep going forever. I think where a lot of people stop is they never get the boulder moving. And so that's our second value proposition. The third thing is just concierge. So we have a, a young team, a really motivated team that we try to turn things around in 24 to 48 hours at all times. So let's talk a little bit about the to what you attribute the growth. We talked about it a tiny little bit at the beginning, but essentially 3x growth in little more than two years time. And I guess what I'm really asking is what are the things you're able to do now for clients as an RIA that you couldn't before? I think from a client's perspective, they know what an RIA is and they know what the prior broker dealer was in conflicts of interest. Those were very clear. You can just Google that. So I think clients felt a lot more comfortable, but just from our perspective, I believe we're providing the same advice that we were prior to now and in general, the same implementation, but we're able to operate with such a it's probably 10x the speed, I would say, in a lot of that aspects. Because we have our legal team works for us, not against us with all this compliance review. I would say the other thing is so three things. One is just the speed. Two is the client's comfortability. And then three is all the creativity has, has worked out great. So we do and this, I think, I don't know because we don't have it tracked directly to this, but I would guess that this is why, you know, last year we did 100 million of new assets, which we obviously the market was dropping, so which was a good year to do that. But we have started to create a large amount of video content, educational material. And the first idea that I, the reason we did this is, hey, let's scale our conversations. You know, how many times are we talking about a backdoor Roth or a mega backdoor Roth or Roth conversions or what asset location is. Let's create video so we can send those to clients. And then during our client reviews, we can talk about their families, aspirations, goals, everything like that. We don't have to get bogged down in these super technical conversations. We're able to send all this information in advance. So that was the first reason we did that. The second reason that it wasn't, it was just kind of a byproduct of doing it was the advisors, the young guys on my team and girls, they started clients started to really trust them because seeing them in front of a camera and hearing their voice, I think studies have shown a certain amount of hours and then boom. So it was a lot of the client handoffs that sometimes take five years, we were able to do in, in like six to 12 months. And I credit the video to that. And then the third thing for that is we started posting that stuff on social media. And so the amount of inbound referrals we have gotten, the quality of those due to the type of content we're putting out has gone up tremendously. And so 
We don't ask for referrals, but the amount of inbound, I don't want to say leads, just people say, hey, we want to work with you guys has gone up dramatically. And I think that's because of a couple of statistics. One is I've heard people scroll through their phones on these different social platforms up to four hours a day or the same amount as like a Statue of Liberty. Like you're scrolling so much, that's how much you're on your phone. Other statistics is you're always, you know, your phone's always four feet away from you. So just staying top of mind has been huge to existing clients to tell us about other clients and also just putting out good content for new prospects. Yeah. Amazing. And that also is a common ground we hear from a lot of breakaways that one of the things that brings them the greatest joy and ultimately growth and productivity is the ability to communicate freely and scale that communication via social media. I want to ask you something that I know it's a topic or a concept we talk about when we counsel perspective breakaways, but you really lived it. So we talk about needing to be comfortable with shrink to grow. The notion that it is unlikely if you move that even in the best of transitions with the best of relationships with clients that you will move 100% of your book, whether it be because you don't want to move 100% of the book or because ultimately some clients fall off and don't want to follow you. And so you need to be comfortable with the notion of shrinking in order to hopefully grow. Because if you didn't believe you were going to grow in the future, then it would be have been a stupid move. In your case, you told me that when you were at your former firm, you were servicing about 600 households, but you only wanted to take 120 with you. So how many did you ultimately move with? And was that a smart move? Like, What was the thinking behind that? Yeah, it was so classic 80-20 analysis. It's something I'm obsessed with. I Every year we talk about, you know, what's the 20% of what we did for our clients that made up 80% of their happiness or 80% of their results? What's the 20% of efforts that we did that drove 80% of the results? And same thing, it's just, this is a rule of thumb, like 20% of people in the world make up 80% of the income. Any company, you could do this analysis and it just, for some reason, it, it holds true. So buying into that and having seen the perspective of other reps at that broker dealer having thousands of clients and not really ever being able to grow or scale their practice and just kind of being a stressful mess really motivated me. But I had head trash around this. And so this took years to decide. And I've, I've, Carson Coaching was a huge proponent in helping me get past this. But I think it sometimes you kind of have to flip things in your head. Like, hey, these clients are dependent on me. Is this selfish? Am I just worried? You know, the reality is this. Those clients, those 480 clients that we did not take, they were not getting good service from me because I did not have the time. Because at that point, I was the only person meeting clients. It was not a scalable thing. And I was doing wrong by those clients because there's some other young rep that those clients would be their top client. And they would be so much better served with that younger rep who could put all their time and attention and excitement into them. The second concept that they helped me with was just realize like, hey, what's your service model? And I realized, well, every time I'm in front of someone, I want to provide as much value as possible. And it was impossible for me to not do that. So if you just think about this logically, like if you go get a new car and you're getting a car and it's 50,000, I'm getting the same brand new car for 25,000, like that would be unethical. And I think a lot of financial advisors, if you look at their books, this is what's happening. You know, they have a client paying them 1,000 a year in fees. They're spending the same time on that client as the client that's paying 50,000 a year in fees. So it's literally you have the top clients subsidizing basically free planning and free advice for these other clients. So for all those reasons, I do think it's the right move for clients first to do that, not only for the clients that you retain, but for the clients that you hand off to another advisor. And the second thing is I do think there's 
a lot of ethical considerations that should go into this. And I think every advisor should really be doing this. Yeah. And it freed you to bring in the right clients, right? You've grown to from the 120 you took with you to 315 relationships and the additional 200 or so you added came from clients that were better fits for you and your firm. No question. So one last question for you, Matt. What's next for Equilibrium? You're young, you've got a long runway. Where do you go from here? Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of REAs have sold minority or majority stakes into private equity. And in talking with some of those firm owners, there is pressure to that. There's great reasons for that for scaling, but there's also, you know, we left to avoid conflicts of interest. So we want to continue that path and make sure that we're a privately held firm that continues on and on and on. So our five-year goal is to reach a billion dollars of assets, which, you know, with a 6% market growth and a hundred million of new assets per year, we'll reach in five years. And then from there, just continue to scale an amazing team and do the best possible work for our clients. I love it. Matt, this has been an absolute delight. I love your passion and enthusiasm and integrity, all of which are palpable. I expect you that you will continue to do amazing things, and I hope we get to talk again soon on this podcast for you to share that. I greatly appreciate you having me. Pleasure. Matt shared a relatable journey for any advisor looking to take the next big step in their business life. In his case, the product-driven environment was incongruent with his own sensibilities. That is, to be client-driven. And he saw no other way to accomplish that than to build his own independent firm. I thank you for listening. And I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the articles link to browse recent topics. These written pieces are an ideal way of staying informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. You can feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 973-476-8578, which is my cell, or by email mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And keep in mind that our services are available without cost to the advisor. You can see our website for more information. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. If you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, I'd be grateful if you gave it a store rating and a review. It will let other advisors know it's a show worth their time to listen to. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. 